Hello and welcome to our latest Beyond Brexit podcast. I'm Emily Khan. With the business focus ever stronger on preparations for the risk of no deal, today we'll be looking at how organisations in different sectors are preparing for Brexit. To help me do that, I'm joined by Kara Haffey, UK Leader of Manufacturing and Automotive, Lisa Hooker, Consumer Markets Leader, and Jules Kirby, who's leading much of our Brexit work in the pharma and life sciences sector. Thank you all for joining me. Jules, as a regulated industry, pharmaceuticals are often talked about as being one of the sectors most advanced in their prep. So I'd like to come to you first, if I may. What sort of things are you hearing from your clients at this point in the process? Well, you're right. I mean, pharmaceutical industry is very heavily regulated and there are long lead times in production quite often for the products. So we saw our clients move quite early to um, hedge risk in their operating model, making sure they had the licenses in place uh, within the EU, moving some roles and in some cases changing their operating models. So okay. they've made a lot of changes already. Um, that said, no deal wasn't necessarily seen as the most likely scenario. So we're seeing focus again on that. Right. Um, a lot of the contingency planning around supply chain and so on and, uh, and, and deeper analysis. And we're seeing um, engagement, so more engagement with both customers and, and suppliers and, and seeing how they can work together to, to plan for, um, for, for all eventualities. Um, and we're also seeing a a focus on lobbying. So um, there was a bit of disappointment in the industry that pharma mm -hmm. didn't achieve a higher profile in the political declaration. So um, we know that pharma companies are very, pharma and life science companies are very active um, in terms of talking to the industry associations and, and working with government to make sure they're represented in, in, in the, um, the future deal. Okay. So against that backdrop of general readiness, and I definitely recognise um, what you've just said there, what does that mean that you're advising clients to focus on at this point that's maybe a bit different from the general calls for no deal prep and readiness that we might hear um, more across the government and business community at large? Well, I think one of the things that's really um, coming to light at the moment is the importance of having joined up conversations. So those areas of higher risk, whether it's the supply base or um, who the, the customers are and some of the more important products, trying to create a joined up conversation from the client to the pharma and life science company to their supply base to right, say, okay. where can we join forces together to make sure that we, yeah. we're planned on this kind of end-to-end -end approach. Um, we're also advising to keep on lobbying in that deal. It's extremely important in the future trade um, ag agreement that the life science and pharma industry is represented in terms of uh, things like mutual recognition mm -hmm. and uh, how easy it is to, to trade um, uh, products across across borders uh, and also the industrial strategy so uh, we saw recently the uh, a second element of the industrial strategy um, being released for, for life sciences it's a very important sector there are a lot of opportunities um, in the UK. There's a lot of investment. We saw over a billion pound worth of investment being yeah. announced recently. So engage in that and look for opportunity in the industrial strategy. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Jules. Um, Kara, perhaps I can come to you next to talk about the concerns that you're hearing in manufacturing and automotive. How does what you're hearing compare to what we've just heard from Jules? Yeah, I think in terms of manufacturing automotive, um, I would say that the the sector's different, so it's obviously not as regulated or not regulated in some senses. You've also got a lot of SME community as well mm -hmm. in that in the UK. Um, I think if I kind of cast my mind back to last summer, we were talking about kind of what the tariffs were, how's that going to look, what the options 
Um, I'd have to say now it is about proper planning for disruption. So it kind of feels real. And to go to the point Jules said about kind of end to end talking, you know, we've had customers asked by the suppliers how they're going to cope. Yeah. We've had suppliers asked by the customers how they're going to cope. So therefore, it's really real in terms of letters that have come in from suppliers saying, you know, under no deal, we will not deliver to the UK in the months following that so therefore that kind of feeling of wow right that's real if you kind of try and understand behind that that's not necessarily because they don't want to supply to the uk that actually comes to the disruption piece which is i don't really want my lorry stuck yeah um and therefore i can't get it back out and it disrupts the rest of my worldwide supply so there is a real focus here on kind of real life situations as businesses are thinking right hold on a second don't have time to do anything about that now potentially because I can't kind of now back yeah, order loads absolutely. of stuff but um, how do I therefore plan for not having stuff leave my factory and still having all the costs so lots of thought around that and that's going to be you know costly in a short-term disruption piece. Yeah. And so what are you advising in light of that and I, I definitely recognise um, that feeling of running out of time and there not being many options available that businesses have got what, what sort of things are you encouraging people to focus on? Well, I suppose, you know, it's a difficult one. It's not an easy an easy answer to a very difficult question. What we are trying to seek planning around and help around is kind of, you know, proper working capital thoughts. So actually, you know, under new levels of debtor creditor days, inventory mm. cycles, kind of how does your business look? Where are the you know, where are the hard times gonna be so that you can be really get a good handle on that and be kind of, you know, really upfront either with your financiers your bankers how you know how is it going to work in your business um you know in what we hope would be a period of disruption that gets back to normal so therefore you know hopefully not nothing um nothing that can't be coped with over a period of time but a period of time different to what management teams usually cope with um but you know brexit's one of these things there's also lots going on in automotive as we've seen and you know in the unfortunate headlines over the last um few months and therefore you know that there's a lot going on worldwide in terms of trade wars diesel you know all those things that are affecting industry um that aren't all to do with brexit as well mm, great thanks and actually some quite distinct themes there from from what jules was talking about maybe lisa we could we could draw you in there for another point of Comparison. I know you and I have talked before about Brexit not being the only show in town in consumer markets and the yeah. retail sector. Bring to life to us the kind of issues that um, people are talking about in that sector. We're just coming out of Christmas, so I think we've seen the well-publicised concerns around consumer spending, whether people are, are buying things or doing experiences, and also the whole cost inflation through the business and the structural change from stores to online. So all that's mm. happening. And the midst of this is Brexit. And I think about Brexit, I think you've got to think a bit differently between the food industry and the non-food. We import 50% of our food and three quarters of that come from the EU. So the food industry has been much quicker at doing some level of contingency planning, such as, you know, if you're a restaurant looking at your menu and potential menu changes, if you're a grocer, you know, sorting locally, yeah. thinking about changing the mix on your sh shelves, maybe having to reduce some of the fresh element of what you supply. Um, so there's a lot more contingency planning being going on and there's a real nervousness around tariffs which could be up to 40% on yeah, some food quite. products. Non-food's a bit different. We actually only import 10% of our non-food right, from the okay. EU. So actually, longer term, it could be an opportunity in terms of negotiating new deals with people like China where we import a lot of our non-food products. 
Having said all that, there are some common themes and some of them we share with the other industries. Frictionless borders, if we get fresh food stuck coming through, that is an issue. Um, people, we actually employ a lot of people from the EU in the industry. Um, and also things like foreign exchange and volatility and all that impact on confidence and consumer spending. So they do share all of those concerns. Right, okay. Mm. So what sort of things are you advising clients to do in that context, maybe building on what, what Jules and Kerr have already suggested? Well, I think for non-food, I think Next has done a very good summary in their statutory accounts of how to think about it. So even though they're less impacted, they still need to think about the borders yeah. and the border impact. I think for the food industry, you really do need to have a plan B of what are you going to do and how you're going to cope with potential shortages in some part of what you're doing. And like other industries, work with your suppliers. The simple things that you can do, and I know there's not that long, is mm. look at your supply chain. Can you simplify and stop some movement across borders? Do you have the data you need if you need to make more customs declarations? And have you worked with your people um, to get them settled status? I mean, some retailers are coming out saying we're actually even going to pay for our people to yeah, get absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We're and I've that heard too. that in manufacturing as well. You know, people really understanding now to try and the employee strategy of trying to you know help people feel secure. Um, work with them on their declarations, pay for that and for their family. So actually, see, you know, trying to see how that works through is very important for our sector as well. Yeah, it's interesting. So supply chain absolutely dominates across all three sectors in what you've said there. But that people thing, I think, is a really common theme too. Jules, just um, reflecting what Karen and Lisa just said, is it, how does it look in the pharma and life sciences sector, the focus on people? Is it very much the same or are there different focuses? Um, the pharma and life science sector, in terms of the direct employees, obviously em employs quite actually quite a high percentage of um, of EU uh, or staff from EU non-UK EU countries, and um, we've seen um, from the Migration Advisory Committee just before Christmas that there was um, a, a view that residents and travel to the UK should be facilitated for those earning in the sort of higher salary, higher qualification level. So existentially there's less of a threat for a lot of those types of roles in 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 pharma but uh, that doesn't stop the more sort of subjective feeling of people thinking is it as attractive to work in the UK as elsewhere so there's definitely communication to be done and engagement um, with with staff within pharma and life science companies on that basis and then also you mustn't forget that at the second tier supply um, level there are for instance, logistics providers for with you know for whom uh, operational issues could be very dramatic for pharma companies, and so if their if pharma companies suppliers are suffering, um, that is still an issue that needs to be addressed, and that's where some of the lower skilled uh, and lower salaried workers are involved. And so again, it comes back to this point about um, engagement. A lot of internal planning has been done on sort of operational contingency planning, and now it's about reaching out actually across that ecosystem to suppliers and customers and starting to talk um, and starting to set expectations and it's the same thing with with employees it's 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 time to talk and make sure that the communications are, are very mm. fluid at the moment and and that will help adjust to whatever the scenarios are i can see you nodding at that care are you recognizing what, what jules has just said there in your sector too yeah, certainly some conversations I've had with clients even over the last week is around and actually very different in different companies, different regions. So I don't think there's an, there's a sort of 
a brush that goes across this, but certainly um, the level of recruitment, particularly on that agency workers, and actually they were saying that they'd had much shorter lists when they'd been going out looking for people mm. than they'd had in the past. Now they were putting that down to Brexit. I don't, you know, I don't know, but actually it was interesting to hear that directly from from clients um, in in the manufacturing space particularly potentially at that sort of lower factory operator level yeah um, so you know it's um, it's something that people are on a watch on because skills has been a key area that we've talked about for years yeah um, and therefore that's a, a deep concern um, that's quite an interesting link to, to the final question that I was hoping to put to you which is around unintended consequences mm. so something you know we're already starting to see the impact of that as an unintended consequence of the uncertainty are there any other examples that you're seeing of things that are already happening that maybe we hadn't foreseen that are being disruptive in their own right, maybe slightly separate from the, the direct Brexit impacts, things that maybe have surprised you or kind of really brought home how significant this, this change might be for us all? I think it shows a little bit how the consumer's feeling that we're now getting talk about consumer stockpiling and this is a time of squeezed consumer income and so this whole stockpiling could actually make the problem worse. I mean, we have been saying to our clients that they probably should think about one to two weeks of extra stock than they normally have and think about the working capital implications of that. But actually what the actual consumer does could actually make the whole thing a little bit worse than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you think in the past, if we've had any weather disruption or anything, like then the consumer stockpiles, then people sort of say, you know, you've cleared the shelves. So that's really interesting. And I think one of my intended consequences is really just around that. I'm not sure that we have thought... Well, certainly I have thought in the past about, you know, people not delivering because they don't want their lorry stuck on a road. It's not necessarily about I can kind of fly in and fly yeah. out as if you've got this picture of how easy it is to, you know, transport and the logistics around it. So for me, that's really important. But also you're relying on, you know, the rest of the EU, everyone who's at the other side of our ports or our airports. So, you know, that's a big point that I'm not sure everybody understood a, a good while ago. How about you, Jules? One of the interesting areas in pharma is that um, we're hearing anecdotally that consumers are extending uh, their their stockpile, if you like, by perhaps not taking the dose that they should be taking of their medicine. So that's obviously a concern. Well, quite scary, particularly, actually. Yeah, on a number of levels. So particularly that the end result might be the effectiveness of that medicine mm. um, is is impacted. And so there are um, there are obviously impacts on the health of those individuals. Um, and so th- that's, uh, that's an example of, of, of something that might not be so much a direct operational business concern, but it is obviously an impact uh, of Brexit. And it comes again down to communication and it comes down to making sure that um, engagement with government is ongoing to try and avoid, uh, and try and avoid those issues. Absolutely. I think that's probably a good point to draw this to a close. Thank you all very much. Some really fascinating angles there. Really bring to life why so many businesses are craving more certainty in what lies ahead. Um, And thank you listeners for joining us. Don't forget you can find insight pieces from all our industry groups on www.pwc.co.uk forward slash Brexit. And bye for now.